Let us pray. We thank thee, our Father, for the fulfillment of that tremendous word. Ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire, and we remember it happened. For the Spirit came upon those waiting disciples as tongues of fire. We thank thee for that experience which gives us courage to believe that the Holy Spirit is still the searching, burning, executive of the Godhead who cleanses from all dross in order that we might be the vessels for the expression of the risen life of Jesus. Then work by thy Holy Spirit. Give us the spirit of repentance. We remember thy word says, Prepare ye the way of the Lord, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. May this be a time of preparation in all our hearts. For the Lord Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Will you turn with me to the Acts of the Apostles once again, chapters 1 and 2. The theme on which I want to speak is the road to revival. And I know no passage of scripture which illustrates the principles that determine the pouring out of the Spirit upon his people. Like this passage in Acts 1 and 2. How many of you know continuous revival in your heart? That experience of the Holy Spirit overflowing your life in blessing to others. I believe there are three steps along the road to revival that we must take if we're going to know individual, personal, or corporate, or widespread revival in our lives. The first one I notice in this passage, I sum up in one word, the word preparation. Preparation. Prepare ye the way of the Lord, repent ye, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Preparation. The Lord Jesus Christ, before he went to the cross, commissioned his disciples to go to Jerusalem, to the place he had appointed them, and there wait until they were endued with power from on high. Those words occur in Luke 24 and verse 49. Behold, I send the promise of my Father upon you, but tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. I don't want you to go out and preach a message. I don't want you to declare that I'm going to die and rise again and become the savior of the world. I want you to go and tarry in Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. For only then will the message of the gospel, only then will your witness become effective to the world around you. Prepare before you preach. And in obedience to that command, they went into the city, into that upper room. And there were 120 of them who waited upon God. There are more than 120 here listening to me this morning. Even more in Radio Land. Are you prepared to wait upon God? What was involved in this preparation? Will you notice first of all there was a oneness of mind. A oneness of mind. We read again and again here that they were with one accord in one place. Eleven times in the New Testament and ten times in the book of the Acts we read that they were of one accord. Isn't that interesting? The book of the Acts of the Holy Spirit in that early church. Eleven times in the whole of the New Testament. Ten times in the book of the Acts they were in one place of one accord. 
oneness of mind. Some time ago, I read right through Dr. Edwin Orr's wonderful treatise on the Second Evangelical Awakening. That document for which he got his PhD at Oxford University, England. And it's the story of the revivals that swept Ireland and Scotland and England and Wales and America. Analyzing the whole substance of the entire work, I came to the conclusion that there were two outstanding conditions for revival. One was unity amongst God's people and the second was the spirit of prayer. Unity amongst God's people and then the spirit of prayer that leads to surrender, to sacrifice, to the paying of any price that God himself will rend the heavens and come down. But first of all, unity amongst God's people. And I want to ask my friend whether you here today can honestly say, so far as I'm concerned, I know that I love everybody. There is nothing between me and any brother or any sister calculated to short-circuit what God is willing and waiting and ready to do. I am absolutely one with my brethren. There is a oneness of mind. And even as I sit in this church this morning, even as I listen to the radio, I am of one accord with my brethren everywhere. There is nothing in my life out of accord with my Lord or my brethren. My unity is complete vertically and horizontally. They were of one accord in one place. Oneness of mind. I'm impressed as I read that beautiful psalm, Psalm 133, where we have the story of how God blesses his people. And we read, Behold how good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. To dwell together in unity. And as you look through that Psalm 133, you'll notice that having stated the fact of unity, the psalmist goes on to say, that there it is that God pours out his spirit, first of all like oil. It is like the precious ointment of consecration upon the head that ran down the beard, even Aaron's beard, that went down to the skirts of his garment, the pouring forth of oil. He goes on and he changes the analogy and he says, as the dew of Hermon, as the dew that descended upon the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord commanded the blessing, even life, forevermore. If oil speaks a fragrance, if dew speaks a freshness, if life speaks of fullness, then the fragrance and the freshness and the fullness of the Holy Ghost is commanded from heaven. When? When brethren dwell together in unity. In unity. And if you want to know anything of the burden and vision of my high priest at the throne of heaven this morning, the great high priest, the Lord Jesus himself, then catch the echo of his prayer in the words he used in that wonderful prayer before he went to heaven. I pray that they all may be one, even as thou, my Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us. Father, I pray that they might be one that they might be one. Unity. Unity. Say, my friend, are you aware of anything that's broken fellowship with God? Are you aware of anything that's broken fellowship with your brother? 
Remember that even the efficacy of the precious blood is limited in your life if you're out of alignment with your brother. For if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, goes on cleansing us from all sin. It's no good to ask for forgiveness. It's no good to ask for cleansing upon your life while there is something against your brother or your sister. For if you remember anything as you bow in prayer, bringing your gift, anything at all against your brother or that your brother has against you, go first and be reconciled to thy brother and then come and offer the gift. Unity, oneness of mind, the first element in preparation. But with that oneness of mind, I want you to notice that there was an openness of heart. An openness of heart. A self-examination was carried out in that upper room. They rehearsed from the scriptures and experienced the sad and tragic story of Judas the traitor. The traitor in the camp. The man who sold the Lord Jesus for money. The man who ministered with him who walked with the Savior, who held the treasury, and yet his heart wasn't true. And they examined their own hearts again in the light of that story, in their attempt to find a successor to him. And you remember their words in Acts 1.24, Thou, Lord, knowest the hearts of all. Thou, Lord, knowest the hearts of all. Show us. Search us. Examine us. Examine us. With the oneness of mind, there was an openness of heart. It was a prayer for searching, for self-examination, for self-judgment. There was an openness of heart and God will never send revival and blessing if there is sin unconfessed. God will never pour out His Spirit if there are hearts closed to the blaze of His glory, to the light that reveals sin. Before the Lord Jesus could minister the living waters to that woman of Samaria, Sitting there by the well side, you remember how he had to probe and probe and probe until that woman's sin was self-evident and exposed and confessed. She tried to hide it, but Jesus broke in upon her life and she perceived that he was a prophet. She perceived that she knew all her life. For remember her testimony? Here is a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? And when she had admitted and opened her life to the Savior, the Master led her to those rivers of living water and she drank, she stooped, she drank, she lived. And with the fullness of the Spirit in her life, she went back to tell a village, Behold, I have found a man who told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? You turn into the Acts of the Apostles and you learn that on the day of Pentecost, having searched their hearts, having examined themselves before God, having aligned themselves with the will of God, the Spirit of God was poured forth. Like a mighty rushing wind he came, like the streams of water from the throne he came, like tongues of fire he came. You leaf over your New Testament from chapter 2 to chapter 4 and something has happened. Fear, sin, something has come into the lives of those early disciples they're trembling before magistrates. They've lost their courage. They've lost their fearlessness. What's happened? Find them again at prayer. They're confessing that they've become fearful. They've confessed that they've lost touch with the throne and they cry to God for a new experience. And you remember that in the searching of those moments and in the cleansing of those moments, the place was shaken again and the Spirit of God fell upon them and they preached the word with great boldness. 
Turn over from chapter 4 to chapter 5. Something else has come into the camp. Ananias and Sapphira had been watching a man who's full of the Holy Ghost. His name is Barnabas. And Barnabas, who was a man full of the Holy Ghost, the son of consolation, had poured down at the feet of the apostles everything he possessed. That was God's call to him. And he wanted to make the sacrifice. And he laid down all his material gifts for the good of the church. And Ananias and Sapphira conspired together. One said to another, if this is the way we can be full of the Holy Ghost, if this is the way we can have prominence in the church, if this is the way we can be noted as outstanding people within the assembly of Jerusalem, let us do similarly. But let's hold back part of the price because we aren't, we aren't wealthy enough to give everything. We're not ready to give everything. And in the name of the whole, they gave a part, holding back part of the price. Sin in the camp, and at once it's felt in the church. There's a block. The streams of living water have been dammed up, and the man of God, Peter, detects it. He detects it. He detects it first in the man and then in the woman. And he says, Why have ye lied to the Holy Ghost? Ye have not lied unto men, but unto God. And God had to smite them. Oh, the solemnity of it. He had to smite them with judgment. And first Ananias and then Sapphira fell to the ground and they were carried out and buried. And we read that great fear came upon the church and with great fear, great power. And with great power, great grace. And multitudes were saved. Multitudes, including the priests and the religious leaders of Jerusalem. God had poured out his spirit again. God can only pour out his spirit where there's searching, where there's judgment, where there's cleansing in the heart of the individual and within the life of the church, yes, preparation involves oneness of mind, but preparation involves openness of heart. Openness of heart. Preparation involves something else. Preparation involves obedience of will. Obedience of will. Listen to these words. Jesus said, go and tarry in Jerusalem until ye be endued with power from on high. The 120 disciples gathered in the upper room were there in obedience to the Lord's command, in obedience to the Lord's behest. And it's always a prerequisite to the fullness of the Holy Ghost that men and women who are the sons of God are the obedient sons of God. Listen to the scripture, the Holy Ghost whom God hath given to them that obey him. When God's commands are brought to us through the pulpit ministry or our own quiet times or through the conversation of a friend or through some other circumstance, it constitutes a call to obedience, to willingness to go right through with God. Obedience of will and revival begins where there is an obedience of will. Charles Finney, who perhaps had more to say about revival than anyone that I know of, makes this amazing statement in the beginning of one of his books. He says, Revival is a new act of obedience on the part of the children of God. That sounds almost superficial. That sounds almost elementary. But the more you think about it, the more you contemplate it, the more you go through the scriptures, the more you realize that given oneness of mind, given openness of heart, revival bursts upon the life when there is obedience of will. The readiness to say, God, cost what it will. 
even if it cuts clean through my business life, even if it means the throwing off of a relationship that I should have never ever entertained, even if it means confessing to a whole church the wickedness and corruption of my life in that it's affected people socially, even if it means the embarrassment of my life through and through, I'm going right through in obedience. And some of us who glibly pray for revival, some of us who say, oh, let it come, oh Lord, we pray thee, let the showers of blessing fall, we're waiting and expecting, oh, revive the hearts of all, are hypocrites and pretenders, for you know you won't go through with God in obedience. Obedience of will to the fullness of blessing in Christ. We can't, we can't relax one moment if we long for revival. Oh, the danger of being so used to seeing souls converted and Christians led on into blessing that we can sit back and relax self-complacently with smug satisfaction. God give us a holy discontent that takes us higher and higher and higher in our longings and thirst for revival. I don't believe that we shall ever know what we long to see in terms of widespread return to God, in terms of a cleansing of our country, in terms of the restating of our standards of moral living, I don't believe we shall ever see an answer to the economic problem. We shall never see an answer to the political problem. We shall never see an exorcising of the evils of our land until revival comes. With all our evangelism and all our gimmicks and all our attempt to merely win people on a modern basis, God waits in heaven to do the new thing. God waits in heaven to do the new thing. And I believe that before the Lord Jesus comes back again, it's his purpose in one generation or another to send out from heaven his dwelling place that latter reign of revival, preparation, preparation. That's the first stone along the road to revival, preparation. And with that preparation there must be supplication. How I thank God that on Friday night in the music room here from 7 o'clock until 12, five solid hours, hardly interrupted, there were people found who were prepared to wait and supplicate the throne of God. We read in Acts 1.14, these all continued with one accord and supplication. These all continued with one accord and supplication. And one imagines that outside of mealtimes, or a little snatch of sleep here or there for 50 days. These continued with one accord in prayer and supplication. And what is true prayer and supplication? Well, simply just two things. First, the admission of human poverty and bankruptcy. And secondly, the acceptance of divine provision. That's what prayer and supplication means in terms of revival. First, the admission of human poverty. Poverty. These disciples had gathered in the upper room with a deep consciousness of their own deficiency and impotency. They realized that they were defeated men. Their witness was ineffective. In fact, it was nil. They were behind closed doors for fear of the Jews. They realized that they did not have the endowment of power which the Lord Jesus had foretold. All they were, they were together, although they were praying, although they were sound in scripture, although they were happy in fellowship, Although they knew the whole story of the traitorous act of Judas and recoiled and revolted from it, although they were equally concerned about making up the number, 
yet they knew they were defeated and beaten men. They knew that they had revival. They knew that though they had walked and talked with the risen Christ, they were still ineffective. They hadn't the courage. They couldn't go out and preach as they did on the day of Pentecost. And this was the nature of their human poverty and bankruptcy and insufficiency and desperate need. And they cried to God in prayer and supplication. Did not Jesus say at the very beginning of that wonderful Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Literally, blessed are they who own their utter spiritual bankruptcy, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. With that admission of poverty, there was the acceptance of divine provision. As they wrestled in prayer, the heavens were opened. And although historically God had planned to do this, though we look back retrospectively now and say, yes, God had planned to do this, it was in his purpose to do it, that's always God's way. God never is taken by surprise. God never works fortuitously. God never works by chance. Prayer was bringing into realization something God had already purposed to do. And I believe this illustrates a principle for God will never meet his people in revival until their wills are adjusted to his will so that he can do in them and through them what otherwise would be inconsistent and unrighteous, unrighteous of him to do. We must pray until we know our wills are one with his will in order that he can do what he's longing to do or to change the thick picture if you want to, to change the analogy. We must be ready so to set the sails of our little boats, so to set the sails of our little boats that should God breathe from heaven at the appointed time, we shall catch that breath and be carried right across the sea of his purpose and blessing. Are your sails set, my brother? Is your life ready for that breath from heaven? Or again, may I put it this way, is your vessel empty that he can fill it? Are you ready for revival? You say, does this sort of thing happen? Has God poured out his blessing by appointment in our time and generation? Listen, not so very long ago, in this very city of New York it happened. Dr. James Little tells a story of the 1857 revival in New York City and area. There was one man who was longing and burdened for revival. And you know the story better than I do of how he put up that little card in Fulton Street inviting anyone who longed for revival and was burdened for revival to come in and pray with him. And no one came and prayed with him for the first night. No one came. But he continued to pray. The words on his heart were Psalm 126, 4. Turn again our captivity, O Lord, as streams in the south. And he continued to pray. And then ones and twos came to join him. And then the room became too small. And the burden of need had spread. And presently, New York was like one big prayer meeting right across this city. And Dr. Little relates how revival fire spread throughout the state of New York. And 250,000 were swept into the kingdom in a matter of a few weeks. 250,000 souls in a matter of a few weeks. Not to speak of revived churches. Not to speak of revived Christians. Not to speak of the fact that all over New York things were happening that hadn't been known for a century. I have spent hours and hours studying and reading about revival for I long to see this happen again and I know the story of four young men in County Antrim, Northern Ireland 
who knelt together in a schoolroom to pray for revival. They longed for revival that God would meet with them and through them touch their fellows and God heard their prayer. And the 1859 revival of Ireland started in County Antrim in a little spot I've seen myself when God broke through and touched four young men and that moved the whole of Northern Ireland and it jumped from there right over to England and revival swept England. I've spent hours at the feet of the aged Evan Roberts of the 1904 revival and I've heard him tell the story over and over again as I've sat there with the tears tripping down my face as I envisage what it must have been like for God to move and sweep through the Principality of Wales. An unknown young man was Evan Roberts. Nobody knew anything about him, but he longed for revival. And he went around telling people to pray. Are you ready to pray with me, brother? Will you stand with me, brother? Will you pray with me, my brother? And presently the whole of South Wales became a prayer meeting and God burst from heaven. And in a matter of a few weeks, fatter of a few weeks, so many souls were saved that there weren't churches to contain them. Meetings started from early in the morning and went through until midnight. Nobody opened a Bible to read because the power of the Holy Ghost was so great that it brought to memory and to consciousness scripture portions that had been learned in childhood days. And people spoke the scripture just as if they had rehearsed for the program. Hymn books weren't used. Why? Because the Spirit of God made the hymns live so vividly and dramatically that they didn't need a hymn book. Saloons and beer houses were boarded up. The mines were just like a great prayer meeting as the boys went down to dig the coal. There was just one song of Zion. Ironically enough, even the little donkeys who carried the coal carts wouldn't work because they were unused to kindness. Brutality went. There was a sweetness and a purity and a wonder about the whole thing. God had broken through from heaven. Somebody says to me, ah, but Mr. Olford, tell me, has that happened just recently? Yes, in 1951 in Scotland, revival broke out in the Hebrides. Duncan Campbell with a hoarse voice, he'd preached himself to a standstill, sat in the very living room of the Reverend Ellen Redpath, which became the parsonage for six years for me. He'd come down from Scotland to take a little rest and there he whispered the whole story of how God moved clean through the Hebrides and that work of God is still going on in northern Scotland today. A movement of the Spirit of God. Could it happen? Will it happen? It isn't God's fault if it doesn't happen. It's your fault, my fault. Are we prepared? Are our sails set? Are we willing for revival? Are we prepared for preparation? Are you prepared for supplication? But with preparation and supplication, as we draw this message to a close, we must have expectation. There are some people who are listening to my voice who are saying that this is impossible and their hearts are full of unbelief. This doesn't touch me. This is amusing or entertaining or inspiring, but I don't really believe it. You're the biggest dam and block to revival, my friend. For with preparation there must be supplication, and with supplication there must be expectation. For listen to the story, when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place, and one can almost sense the hush of the moment, the spirit of expectancy. And we read that suddenly there came a sound from heaven of the rushing mighty wind, and they were all filled 
with the Holy Ghost. We can pray all night and appear outwardly keen, but if there isn't any expectancy in our hearts, there'll be no blessing. All things whatsoever ye shall ask, said our Savior in prayer, believing, ye shall receive. And what happened? Why their expectancy was rewarded, for from heaven the Spirit fell, and three mighty facts are recorded for us here. There was the fullness of the Spirit. They were all filled with the Holy Ghost. And when the fullness of the Spirit comes, things begin to happen. In this case, the place was shaken. And if each one of us were filled with the Holy Ghost, not only would Calvary Church be shaken, but New York would feel the impact of it. Greater than any crusade or any evangelistic effort, revival would enter over doors through channels we could never possibly organize in human strength and energy. Fullness of the Spirit, and with the fullness of the Spirit there was the freedom of the Spirit. They all spake, all prohibitions and inhibitions were gone, and with the freedom of the Spirit there was the fruitfulness of the Spirit for 3,000 souls were one in that moment, and then three more thousand, and then 5,000, and then myriads, says Dr. Luke in his record in the Acts of the Apostles. Tell me, my friend, are you prepared for this? Are you prepared to go through with the conditions, preparation, supplication, expectation, that the fullness, that the freedom, that the fruitfulness of the Spirit in revival may come upon us? If you are, will you tell him so as we bow together in prayer? Let us pray. Remember the milestones along the road to revival are preparation, supplication, and expectation. Let your prayer be, let it come, O Lord, we pray thee. Let the showers of blessing fall. We are waiting and expecting. O revive the hearts of all. Holy Spirit, take this message, burn it into my heart, into every heart, and give us no rest until our rest is realized in a mighty outpouring of the Spirit in revival. Because we ask it for... Amen. This is David Olford. You have been listening to a message from God's Word delivered by my late father, Dr. Stephen F. Olford, who went to be with the Lord in the year 2004. If you wish to learn about our online resources or learning events at the Institute for Biblical Preaching, our web address is olford.org. That's O-L-F-O-R-D dot org. You also may want to benefit from our online video training on expository preaching, which can also be found on our website. Thank you so much for listening.